In the 1970s, a handsome, charismatic man traveled the country from Washington State to Florida. He stalked ski resorts, motels, middle school parking lots, high school plays, and college dormitories. Wherever he went, he left a trail of terror and death. He may have been the most prolific serial killer in American history. We may never know how many people he killed or the total sum of pain he may have caused to an untold number of families. At various times, he said he killed 30 women or 36 women or 135 women or more or less. We may never know. One of his attorneys called him the very definition of heartless evil. A woman he once worked with, who went on to become one of America's best-known chroniclers of true crime, said he was a sadistic sociopath. He described himself as the most cold-hearted son of a bitch you'll ever meet. His name was Ted Bundy. As you sip a tequila sunrise, listen to his story. Maybe you can figure out and understand the mystery of Ted Bundy. Because I can't. Our tale begins in Vermont in 1946 at the Elizabeth Lund Home for Unwed Mothers. Eleanor Kroll gave birth to a baby boy. His birth certificate said the father was unidentified. Eleanor said his father was a traveling salesman named Lloyd Marshall. Or then again, maybe it was an Air Force vet named Jack Washington. Or possibly, it was Eleanor's own father, Samuel Kroll, though there's no evidence to support this. His paternity was just the first of many mysteries in the life of Ted Bundy. For his first three years, Eleanor and Ted lived with her parents in Philadelphia. People were told, including Ted, that his grandparents were actually his parents and that Eleanor was his big sister. Ted told some people that he learned the truth when he was 11 years old and his cousin called him a bastard and showed him the copy of the birth certificate. He told other people that he didn't find out the real story till he was in college and found his birth certificate at the courthouse in Vermont. Another mystery. He told some people that he loved his grandfather, that he clung to him but he told other people that he hated his grandfather, that he was a cruel, violent racist who beat dogs and cats and bullied his wife. That seems closer to the truth. His grandmother was a lonely, shy, depressed woman who was hospitalized and underwent electroshock therapy numerous times. This household obviously wasn't an ideal place to raise a child. Eleanor's friends and relatives told her that she needed to move out and get away from this dysfunctional family. 
So when Ted was four, they moved to Tacoma, Washington, and lived with Eleanor's cousin for a while. She went to a singles group at a local Methodist church and met a man named Johnny Bundy, a hospital cook. They later married, and Johnny adopted young Ted. They tried to establish a father-son relationship. Johnny tried to include Ted, taking him camping. He tried to teach him how to hunt and fish, but they never bonded. Ted never respected his adopted father. He wasn't too bright and didn't make much money, Ted later said. Ted told people different stories about his adolescence in Washington. He described himself as a loner who didn't have any friends. But high school classmates remembered him differently, as someone who was fairly popular in high school and had a circle of friends. One classmate said he was a medium fish in a large pond. Ted told some people that he used to sneak around alleys and search trash cans for old pulp detective magazines with pictures of naked or dead women. He later told Ann Rule he never looked at magazines like that, and he couldn't understand anyone who did. They didn't interest him at all. He told some doctors that he used to sneak around at night, peeping in windows, looking for women undressing. To others, he denied ever doing it. More contradictions in our search for the real Ted Bundy. One thing we do know for sure about his youth, he was a thief. His one passion was downhill skiing, and he financed this expensive habit by stealing equipment and forging lift tickets. He was arrested twice during his teen years, but upon turning 18, his convictions were expunged and his record was cleared. Following graduation, he enrolled in Puget Sound University and later transferred to the University of Washington. He majored in Chinese. He became active in local Republican politics and was elected a Rockefeller delegate to the 1968 Republican Convention. He met a fellow student who goes by the name of Stephanie Brooks in all of the Bundy literature and books. They began dating, but she became frustrated with what she saw as Ted's lack of ambition and drive. He was failing a number of his classes and eventually stopped attending school, focusing instead on skiing and partying and petty crime. She broke up with him. He was devastated and left Washington, returning for a time to Philadelphia and Temple University. It was during this trip that he may have researched his birth records and learned the truth about his mother. By 1969, he was back in Washington, and he seemed to have gotten his life together. He re-enrolled in college and became involved in the community and in politics. He volunteered at a local suicide hotline where he met a former Seattle police officer named Ann Rule, who was an aspiring crime writer. She remembered Bundy as being very sincere and kind and empathetic. He continued his involvement in Republican politics, working in the campaign of Governor Dan Evans. Following the election, Governor Evans appointed him to a Citizens Advisory Committee on Crime Prevention, 
and recommended him for a job with the Washington Republican Party. He was remembered as being very politically savvy and doing a good job. He applied for law school, and though his grades weren't great, based on the governor's recommendation, he was accepted. He met a woman named Liz Klofner. Their relationship would continue in one form or another for the rest of Ted's life. He also reconnected with Stephanie Brooks. She was impressed by his newfound drive and focus. They discussed marriage, and at one point on a trip to Florida on Republican Party business, he introduced her as his fiancée. Abruptly, after returning to Washington, he broke off all contact with her. He stopped calling her and stopped returning her calls. When she finally confronted him and asked why he was ignoring her, he said, Stephanie, I, I don't know what you mean. He said later that he just wanted to prove to himself that he could have married her if he had wanted to. Looking back, Stephanie said that she thought the whole reconciliation had been a scam, part of a plan to hurt and humiliate her for breaking up with him years before. Anne Rule thought the same thing. After this, Ted stopped attending classes at law school, and young women around Washington and the Pacific Northwest started going missing. On January 4, 1974, Bundy entered the apartment of a Washington student. He beat her unconscious and raped her. Less than a month later, he broke into another basement apartment of another student, knocked her unconscious, dressed her, kidnapped her, and later murdered her. For the first half of 1974, young women were disappearing from the Pacific Northwest at the rate of one a month. Is this when Ted Bundy's murderous spree began? Many people, including Anne Rule, think it began much earlier, perhaps as early as 1961 when Ted was only 14. An eight-year-old girl was murdered, and Anne Rule believes Bundy was involved. He later told investigators that he began killing some women in 1969 and 1971, but he told others that he didn't. So yet, another mystery. By this time, Bundy had perfected his modus operandi. In that pre-DNA area, he had meticulously studied how to avoid leaving physical evidence at a crime scene. He usually used a blunt object to render his victim unconscious. A tire iron, a lug wrench, a piece of wood. He never used a gun. Too messy. Too loud. He scouted out remote locations to take his victims for their actual murder, which was usually by strangulation, sometimes with pieces of their own clothing. He would either break into an apartment in the middle of the night or approach a woman and ask for help. He would frequently have his arm in a sling or be on crutches and ask for help carrying something to his car. When they got to the car, he would hit them with a tire iron or push them inside and handcuff them. Sometimes he would identify himself as a police officer or firefighter and ask them to accompany him to help identify their stolen car. 
By 1974, the police had an artist sketch of him and a description of his Volkswagen. Ann Rule, Liv Klofner, and another co-worker told the police that the sketch resembled Ted Bundy, but they quickly ruled him out. How could such a clean-cut, well-spoken law student be a rapist and a murderer? By 1975, he had moved to Utah with Liz Klofner and enrolled in law school there. Women were now vanishing in Idaho and Utah and northern Colorado. In August of that year, he was stopped by police, and they found a number of things in his car like rope and handcuffs and an ice pick. He had an explanation for all of it. Luckily for him, he said later, they didn't look in his glove compartment or they would have found Polaroid pictures of some of the women that he had killed. Klofner began to find things around her house that were out of place, things like women's clothing, a meat cleaver that she had never used, and surgical tools. She again notified police. Bundy was finally arrested on charges of assault and kidnapping and sentenced to 15 years in prison. Police in Aspen, Colorado, charged him with murder. He was extradited and transferred to Glenwood Springs, where he escaped and was captured six days later. He was representing himself in court and said he needed to go to the law library to do research. He climbed down a second-story window and jumped to the ground. While awaiting trial, he escaped again and hitchhiked to Vail, Colorado, where he boarded a bus to Denver and then a plane to Chicago. He ended up in Florida. On January 15, 1978, he broke into the Key Omega sorority house on the Florida State campus, where he bludgeoned and killed two women and severely injured two others. On February 8, he attempted to lure a 14-year-old away from school by posing as a fireman. Her brother intervened, and he ran away. He went to a middle school and kidnapped a 12-year-old girl from a parking lot and raped her and killed her. By now, police had his description and a description of the car. Witnesses saw him leaving the Key Omega house with a log. The girl and her brother identified him and the car as the person posing as a fireman. He was arrested a week later. He told the arresting officers, I wish you had killed me. He stood trial in Florida for the Key Omega killings. The state offered a plea deal that would have kept him out of the electric chair, but he turned it down. He was convicted and sentenced to death for the two murders. Six months later, he stood trial for the murder of 12-year-old Kimberly Leach. Again, he was sentenced to death. During the penalty phase of this trial, Bundy was acting as his own lawyer. He called a former co-worker from Washington as a witness. Her name was Carol Brooks. During the testimony, he suddenly asked her to marry him, and she said yes. Bundy was familiar with an obscure Florida law that said if a couple proclaimed themselves to be married before a sitting judge in an open court, then the marriage was legal. Brooks later gave birth to a daughter that she claimed was Bundy's and had been conceived during an illicit tryst at the jail. During the appeals process, Bundy began talking to journalists and others. 
He confessed to some of the murders and confessed to others that he had not previously been connected with. He began to drop hints and details about the location of victims' bodies. His lawyers asked for delays in the execution date to give authorities more time to locate information about victims' remains and other unsolved murders. The newspapers called this Ted Bundy's Bones for Time scheme. It didn't work. He was executed in Florida's electric chair on January 24th. 1989. Who was Ted Bundy? What drove him to kill? There may be as many explanations as victims. Anne Rule posited that his killing spree may have been spurred by his rejection by Stephanie Brooks. Many of his victims resembled her. Long hair, parted in the middle, pretty, young, Bundy said that was ridiculous. His victims had to be young and beautiful, he said, but beyond that, they weren't physically similar to Brooks in any way. Bundy himself told two interviewers it was about control and possession. When he saw something he wanted, he had to have it, whether it was a pair of ski boots or a young woman. Kidnapping a woman and taking her life was the ultimate possession, he said. It bound him to her forever. He would frequently visit a victim's corpse for days or weeks after the murder. He would apply makeup and bathe the decaying body. He decapitated at least 12 of his victims and kept their heads in a refrigerator. The afternoon before his execution, he talked with James Dobson, a Christian radio host and psychologist. He told Dobson that pornography was what caused him to commit the murders. It started with the detective magazines he used to read and that he needed more and more violent images and stories to satisfy his urges until the stories weren't enough. He had to inflict the pain firsthand. But this contradicts what he told Ann Rule, or what he told another psychologist just hours before the Dobson interview when he said pornography played a negligible role in his crimes. Throughout the course of his appeals, he was interviewed by numerous psychiatrists. Dr. Dorothy Lewis originally diagnosed him as bipolar, but later said it could have been a multi-personality disorder. This was supported by some people who knew him well, and said they saw sudden changes take place in his voice and and even his appearance, almost as if he were a different person. He was a favorite nephew to one of his great aunts, and she said one night they were at a railroad station waiting for a train, and she looked at him, and all of a sudden his appearance and his voice changed, almost as if he were a different person. That was the night, she said. She became afraid of him. Other professionals said that he probably had a narcissistic personality disorder. He was very manipulative and rarely showed empathy or remorse for his actions. So what was it? What caused it? Who knows? One of the prosecutors, George Deckel, may have summed it up best. It wasn't pornography or anything else. It was Bundy. What a crazy dude. 
That was a good one, Dad. He is he is scary. I I had goosebumps all the time researching <laughs> and reading this. Um, man. Mm-hmm. He's uh freaky. That's for sure. Uh, well, before we talk more about Mr. Bundy here, let's talk about some fashion. Go some, for it. This is Trends of the Crime. This is the part of the podcast that is sponsored by Style a la Mode, where I tell you all about the fashion that was in vogue during the time of these crimes. All right. Since a lot of this was in the 70s, I found some overviews of women's and men's fashion during this decade. Women's fashion, uh, popular early 1970s fashions for women included tie-dye shirts, Mexican peasant blouses, folk-embroidered Hungarian blouses, ponchos, capes, and military surplus clothing. Bottom attire for women during this time included bell-bottoms, gauchos, frayed jeans, midi skirts, and ankle-length maxi dresses. What do you remember from that time, Dad? The ladies wearing... This was high school and college for me, um, and I think you know that pretty well sums it up. Of course, the mini skirts and the peasant blouses I I remember from back then. Uh, little town where I grew up, if a if a girl came to school in a mini skirt, the teachers would make her stand up, and if her fingertips Measure. did not did not touch cloth but touched her her legs instead, uh, she got sent home. So uh, harsh. Any of you ladies from Dalhart, Texas, who went to high school with me, you know, maybe you got sent home. I know. Let a few us of know. You, I know a few of you did, but uh, if you're one of them, go ahead and post it on the on our uh, on our Facebook group. Yes, I would love to hear those stories, please. All right, here's what my dad would have been wearing in high school and college. Let's see how how accurate this is for your style. In the 70s, people often wore bold and daring outfits. While there were a variety of looks for the decade, most of them incorporated eye-catching colors and patterns, a silhouette that was tight up top and loose down the bottom, and interesting textures such as satin, suede, and corduroy. So there was, I noticed a lot of those uh, textures, the satin, the suede, and the corduroy in jackets and in the pants for men. What else am I missing? Well, um, I, I do. I remember the tight shirts. We always mm-hmm. had the guys. We always had to have tight shirts, uh, bell-bottom pants, multicolored. The thing, the, the things you'd see on the PGA Golf Tour today, with with some of the ways these golfers dress. A lot ah. of that looks like the seventies. Um, one thing I remember that I have one of my proudest possessions back then were white platform heeled shoes you did not have those. i did i had white shoes with with probably two inch heels where did them. you wear them everywhere <laughs> worn to school i wore them everywhere oh and, and a white belt for my oh. for my bell bottom pant the belt does have to match the shoes and it did so good I'm tell glad. you what yeah, those were the those were the seventies. We, uh, your mom and I, watched the Brady Bunch movie last night. Oh yeah, and so we we saw uh, Greg wearing things just uh-huh. like that. Did you ever uh, let your chest hair fly? I didn't get any chest hair until I was forty two years old. Oh so no, <laughs> so no. You know, people can't see you. You can lie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, Ted Bundy. I feel like he was a bit more muted than all of this. And in his style, mm-hmm. uh, 
He wore a lot of blazers, over-collared shirts, cardigan sweaters, and flared jeans, but I did not notice any crazy patterns or colors. He was very much a law student. And he was a conservative. Mm -hmm. He was a Republican. And he worked for Republican politicians, so I wouldn't I wouldn't have expected to see him dressed in anything but but uh, young Republican type clothes, a young Republican haircut. Uh, he would not have been welcomed as part of the Chicago Seven uh, at the Democratic convention in 1968. Mm-hmm. And his hair was kind of it was longer, right? A little bit, yeah. In some pictures, yeah, but it looked short in other pictures. No, he just looked like a, a typical clean-cut cutie, the conservative uh, college student and law student back in those days, which helped him avoid suspicion at the very mm-hmm. beginning. Uh, that is not the typical image that the police had of a serial killer. It's still not. I mean, even after all this, I feel like, you know, when I, like, the dad next door murders someone. It's like, you never think it's him. Everyone who knows him is like, he would never do that because he looks like a normal, normal guy. So even still, that's, that's an issue, I think. All right. Talk to us about the tequila sunrise and why you chose it. Well, I chose the tequila sunrise because it is one of the quintessential cocktails of the 70s. Its base spirit, of course, is tequila. It's tequila and orange juice. And when I make it, I'm going to take a bit of uh, grenadine syrup, pour it over the back of the spoon, down the side of the glass, and that beautiful red cherry and pomegranate flavor is going to sink to the bottom. So we're going to have a uh, an orange orange juice uh, with the sun just creeping up toward the top of the glass. So that's why they call Ooh. it the tequila sunrise. Um, it's It's been around again for a long time, but it was... Uh, popularized in the early 70s uh, by a couple bartenders down in Sausalito, California, and it really gained its notoriety after Mick Jagger began drinking it, and the Rolling Stones dubbed their 1972 tour the Cocaine and Tequila Sunrise Tour. And so it has been a staple of uh, rock and roll for for almost 50 years. So we're going to make one. Sweet. Well, and as a bonus, I had a good cocktail this morning. I had basically a mimosa. Well, okay, it wasn't. It was champagne with apple juice. Hmm. Very fall, very easy, very fun. There you go. So there's an extra. Has nothing to do with today's episode, but there you go. You're welcome. Today's episode is brought to you by Landlocked KC. You guys know how much we love fashion and our hometown of Kansas City here at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. One of my favorite local clothing companies is Landlocked KC. Not only does Landlocked help all of us Kansas Cityans show off our KC pride with their Comeback City collection, but they also advocate for equality in race, religion, orientation, and gender with their equality collection. If you're all about a good comeback, whether that's about the Royals and Chiefs coming back to win the World Series and Super Bowl, or about our community coming back from the COVID shutdown and current political climate, you'll find some amazing new pieces in Landlock's Comeback City collection. I recently purchased Landlock's Coach's logo jacket, and I'm obsessed. You can see how I styled it on our social media pages. Check out the rest of Landlocked's fun pieces at www.landlockedco.com. 
Show us what you buy in our VIP Facebook group. Oh, and go Chiefs! All right. Well, I know that we got pretty detailed into Bundy's childhood, but it was definitely sad. I mean, it's always, I feel like it's always hard for young men if they, you know, don't know who their father is and then they're being lied to about who their parents are. I mean, that's a very, that's a very hard thing. So, yeah. Right. And his grandfather seemed like a piece of work. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know his original story was he loved his grandfather, but from, from other family members, it seems like this guy was just off the rails, which... That may explain part of, of Ted Bundy. If, if his grandfather did have some of these sadistic tendencies, uh, people have talked about him having uh, hallucinations, talking to people who weren't there, almost a kind of a schizophrenia. So it might run in the family. Well, and if his grandfather was disrespectful to women and didn't value women, then that would explain right. why Ted thought he could just do whatever he wanted. I think you're right. Well, and the fact that there was even a, a question of a rumor that a father had a baby with his daughter. I mean, even if it's not true, that says a lot that someone would think that. Certainly. That's enough right there. So Ted also had really strange um, behavior during childhood. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I've said this on this podcast before, but I've known, I've heard this many times, but children who like kill animals for fun, not hunting, just they like see a bunny and just kill it for no reason. That's a really bad sign. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> because they usually don't take killing as a heavy thing. It's like, Oh, I can just kill something smaller than me. And it's easy, you know? So right. I feel like a lot of serial killers, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer is another one who would just, didn't he kill animals? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's what I thought. Uh, yeah, it's not good when they just kill animals or, or even hurt animals. Mm -hmm. So he did some of that. Something else strange uh, that one of Ted's relatives had. Uh, she recalled waking up from a nap to find herself surrounded by knives from the kitchen and Bundy standing by the bed smiling. Ew. It's horror movie stuff. It is. It is. Uh, weird. Oh, and then he also would, supposedly he would pick through trash barrels in the neighborhood looking for photos of naked women, which again goes against his story mm -hmm. that he didn't like pornography or whatever. There are just so many contradictions. He would, mm -hmm. he would tell people one thing about being hooked on pornography and needing it and then tell other people I never looked at the stuff. You just you just don't know. And Rule finally said, well, we may never know what was true about him, but he wanted an excuse for everything. Mm -hmm. If it wasn't his grandfather, then it was pornography. If it wasn't pornography, it was Stephanie Brooks rejecting him. Um, I mean, he even got to the point where he would kind of blame the victims. He said he could sense when they were afraid and he could sense when they were vulnerable. And it was almost as if like they wanted him to do it, almost as if they were out looking for something. And so, again, his whole life was was about finding an excuse. It was never about him. It's almost like he would read the person who he was talking to and kind of say maybe what they would want him to say. 
blame it on what they were expecting. I don't know. It felt like because he was saying different things to different people, maybe it was based off of what he knew about that person. Oh, he can manipulate people. Mm -hmm. uh, even some of the psychiatrists that, that saw him recognized that he was very manipulative. And a couple of them said he could even manipulate me. He mm -hmm. would know what I wanted him to say, and and he would say it. So, smart. I mean, he was, That's another sign. They're all smart. Oh, They're all was, geniuses. <laughs> he was. He was. He was very smart, at least in this area. Now he right. had trouble in school. He had trouble in law school. So it's not like he was a, a great student. But um, he also had trouble. I read understanding interpersonal relationships. Like he didn't understand. Friendships. He didn't understand how to develop a friendship, uh, and that you know, which makes sense. Just, I'm sure he had a. Do, do you know what his IQ was? I'm sure he had a very high. IQ. I never read that, huh? Me neither. But yeah, that was definitely not an area he was strong in. Was mm -hmm. developing relationships, mm -hmm. genuine, meaningful relationships. Um, and he was arrested at least twice in high school on suspicion of burglary mm -hmm. and auto theft. Mm -hmm. Good, good. All right. So we alluded to this, but Bundy was very handsome and didn't fit the quote unquote look of a serial killer. You know, he was charming. He wasn't creepy. Mm -hmm. He was a nice guy, I guess. Another thing about his appearance, uh, a number of people who knew him said there was just something about him that he could almost change his appearance by just making a minor mm -hmm. change. He could comb his hair a different way. He could um, pose a different way. And he, he became almost unrecognizable. He was almost like every man. He was handsome, but not handsome enough that he stood out in crowds. I noticed just looking at some of the pictures I saw of him that uh, – I looked at one and I thought, man, this guy, he looks just like Robert Downey Jr. Mm -hmm. And then I saw another picture and uh, he didn't look like that anymore. And it was maybe his hair, his expression. It's like maybe. something you can't put your finger on. Right. But yeah. they said that that helped too because uh -huh. there, there was nothing distinguishing about him when, when the police were looking for him. He had a mole on his neck and that's why he wore turtlenecks a mm -hmm. lot to cover mm. that up. But evidently, he's the type of person you could look at and probably, well, what did the police would ask for a description? Well, he was average looking. Mm -hmm. He was of average height. He was of average weight. He had kind of dark, but not too dark hair. Very hard to get a description of him. And he knew that. And he, he played on it. Mm -hmm. uh, he could change his appearance with a pair of glasses when he was, uh, when he was out impersonating police officers or um, firefighters put on a pair of glasses and uh, he didn't look like the person in all the police sketches that were out right. there anymore. So again, well, yeah, but, like it's easy to say like, Oh, that's not him. When you have someone who looks so when everyone's saying he just looks normal, well, mm -hmm. like saying he looks normal, then you see this guy, Oh, he's got glasses. That would be a distinguishing feature. So it can't be him even mm -hmm. though. So I can see how that saying he's average would mm -hmm. definitely Mm -hmm. do a lot more harm than good right for sure right and you know speaking of his intelligence again he indicated you know maybe the first murders he did he was really rushed and just did them kind of on spur of the moment but as he went along he planned these things out carefully mm -hmm. knew exactly where to hide the the weapon he would use to knock the woman unconscious wouldn't leave physical clues 
at a crime scene. So I, I think they found a couple fibers of his jacket on one of the victims. They found what may have been some of the victim's hair in his car, but he didn't leave bloodstains laying around. Never found a pair of his fingerprints ever. Wow. Never found any physical evidence connecting him to any of these crimes. Do you think if it had happened now, he would have been caught sooner? Probably with DNA. That's what I'm... Uh, because they... Uh, when he would rape a woman, they mm -hmm. did find semen stains and things like that. So it probably ask. would have been easier today. But yeah. back then, I mean, it was they pretty much to. fingerprints yeah. and eyewitness ID. And he just, he was careful enough they didn't leave that. Mm -hmm. Never went to the same place twice. So he would never dump his victims in a central location. Evidently, he would scout out locations. He would be, never be seen around them. He never attempted to kill anyone he knew. Mm -hmm. He mentioned once about his friend, Liz Kloffner, who he lived with, mm -hmm. that uh, whenever he felt, I don't know if he used the word the demon or the dark side coming on, he would leave. Um, he would leave? He would leave her. Oh, He'd, he'd uh -huh. leave for a few days. Oh, he, I see. he evidently had this urge to kill, and he didn't want to kill her because that would, well, I'm sure he had feelings for her, but beyond that, he obviously would have been the suspect. The boyfriend always would be. And I was thinking, because we'll get to this in a minute, but the fact that Liz and her daughter would always wonder why he didn't kill them. And Molly, the daughter, has a quote about that, which I'll get to. But I also think he just wanted to look normal. Mm -hmm. So he needed to have this girlfriend and right. the stepdaughter and the perfect little right. family. So again, he fit in. Yep. He fit in. And the movie on Netflix that recently came out with um, Zac Efron. Extremely wicked, shockingly evil, and vile. That got a lot of controversy because um, Zac Efron, one of the most beautiful men of my generation, uh, plays Ted Bundy, and he was very charming. And you know, he would like wink at the camera, and people almost people thought the creators of this movie were making light of the gravity of the situation, and the focus was on Bundy and not on the victims. But as others pointed out, and what I thought of when I would read that was, well, that's the point because that's how he was. And mm -hmm. it needs to draw attention to men like that do things like this. Like it's not just the weird guy or, you know, it can be the hot guy who is really nice and flirts with you, who then murders you. I agree. And that's how he did it. Yep. That's how he did it. Yep. And yeah, that was a really good movie. If you haven't watched it, definitely watch it. All right, let's talk about Liz and Molly now. I got a lot of my information that I'm going to talk about from this ABC News article called Serial Killer Ted Bundy's Former Girlfriend, Her Daughter, Wonder Why He Spared Them. And it is by, oh, Lauren Efron. Probably no relation <laughs> to Zach Efron. <laughs> Gwen Goen and Ed Lopez. All right. So, and Liz actually wrote a book called The Phantom Prince, My Life with Ted Bundy. And they dated from 1969 to 1974. And Liz and Molly had no idea that Ted was a serial killer when they were in his life. Mm -hmm. So, which, of course not. Because why would a woman and want to want her young daughter to be around a serial killer? Right. So, <laughs> um, so this was the quote I was just talking about. Molly recently said, 
I heard a story told by one of his attorneys he had. He said Ted told him that he would play games with these animals. I don't remember if they were mice or something else, her daughter Molly Kendall added. And he would let some of them live and some of them die. And to me, that's us. We're just these mice that were allowed to live. Like I said, I don't really think that's the case. I think he was very strategic. It wasn't like, oh, I'll just let these two live, kill everyone else. I think it was more part of his image that he had to maintain to prevent Mm -hmm. being caught. All right. And if he had killed them, he would have immediately been a suspect. Exactly. (laughs) He didn't want to get caught. Mm Mm-hmm. He was not one of these people who were leaving clues all over the place. I mean, he was, as you you use the word strategic, and I think that's absolutely correct. He planned these things. Mm -hmm. But I do wonder why he didn't kill Liz when he met the night he met her. Yeah. Maybe she said she had a daughter. I don't know. Maybe she like told him she had a daughter and he didn't. But if he has no empathy, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe he thought she looked like she'd be a good, like, stable woman to be in his life and thought, okay, she'll stick with me. She won't be too suspicious. I don't Mm. know. Never know. Strategy, I guess. That's what I'm going with, but who knows? Uh, Liz did note that Ted's behavior was sometimes odd. She said that he once came home with a pair of ski boots that he had stolen from the student union. And When she asked why, he said that if he hadn't stolen them, someone else would, Mm -hmm. which is weird. (laughs) Yeah, he told he told the uh, I believe they were reporters that, uh, you know, it was about possession. If he wanted something, he would take it. Yep. Whether it be ski boots or a woman Mm -hmm. and uh, goes back again, just not having any. Any sense of remorse or empathy. Mm -hmm. So. Just thinking about himself. Mm-hmm. Liz also said that she felt Ted distancing himself from her in the summer of 1974. And when Ted was on death row, he confessed to an FBI officer that he had been abducting and killing women for months by then. Because she kind of thought, well, that must be when he started doing that. But he had been doing it forever, but not forever, but for years. And looking back now. Liz says that there were red flags that she ignored. Uh, She always talked herself out of it because it couldn't be her Ted that she knew. And Molly even would jokingly confront him because she had become old enough to like understand what was happening in the news. And here's another quote by her. She said, when they had this profile of him, I brought up the similarities to him. I said, this guy's name's Ted. Your name's Ted. This guy has a Volkswagen. You drive a Volkswagen. You know, it's you. And he just laughed and said, no, monkey, of course. I would never do anything like that. Hmm. (laughs) Ugh, disgusting. Yeah. Oh, how scary. And Liz has said that she holds a lot of guilt about her her relationship with Ted. And I mean, just thinking of being in that position, like knowing... And I'm sure we all would have done the same thing. Oh, it can't be him. But I mean, if she had known, think of all the women who would have lived, Mm -hmm. you know, not blaming her, but of course, but. But she did call the police on him twice. She did. Yes, she did. She tried. Mm -hmm. um, And the police just said, no, it can't be him. So it's not like she just sat by with her eyes closed. True. True. Yeah. Crazy. As we also talked about, as you talked about in the story, Ted did escape from jail. A couple Mm -hmm. times. Mm -hmm. And 
So I got this information from another ABC News article called How Notorious Serial Killer Ted Bundy Was Able to Escape from Custody Not Once, But Twice, I'm guessing it mm-hmm. said. It went away. Yeah. Okay. Twice. Okay. <laughs> um, and this uh, provoked a memory I had from watching that Netflix movie that I remember being confused about that part. Um, but there's a scene where Ted Bundy is in jail and he keeps practicing jumping from the top bunk onto the floor over and over and over. Mm-hmm. I was like, why is he doing that? Like, what's he doing? And then it all makes sense when he jumps out of a second story window because he was practicing his land. But of course, jumping from a second story window is way farther than jumping from a top bunk <laughs> to the floor. Yeah. So, but anyway, that's how he escaped the first time. As you said, he was in the law library and they took his handcuffs off and they were like, oh, you don't need your handcuffs. We're right here. Yep. Okay. Of course he escaped, you idiots. And then the second escape, he. He had gone on a diet and lost 35 pounds, lost a lot of weight, so he could. Uh, he had a hacksaw smuggled in and was cutting some beams in the ceiling so he could wiggle through the ceiling, go to the jailer's apartment, who he knew was out of town mm-hmm. or, or out for dinner, I guess, went into the jailer's apartment, uh, put on the jailer's clothes, and just walked out. <laughs> Got on a bus, got on a plane, and went to Florida and started killing more people. Yep. Ugh. And, like, how stupid. Like, don't go killing more people when mm-hmm. you escape. Of course you're going to get caught. They're looking for you. Yeah. The interesting thing about the Florida ones, especially the first ones, he had kind of regressed away from the planned, uh, meticulously planned mm. kidnappings and just started breaking into apartments and bludgeoning women and raping them. So Ugh. they think maybe by that time, you know, the stress and being a fugitive, he knew mm-hmm. he was going to be caught and he just, it became much more random than it, than it was in the past. Well, and I think if this is the the spree I'm remembering from a documentary or something, I think that there were a couple or a few women from that sorority who survived, who lived and mm-hmm. were able to talk about what happened. But I don't remember if they came home and found one of them dead or all of them dead. I can't remember. But I think he, he broke in and to, to the sorority, uh, beat one woman. He had a log, a, a uh-huh. wood log from a fireplace. Uh, beat her with that, raped her, but didn't kill her. And she survived and was able to identify him. Another uh, one he did kill. Another one he broke in. Um, and uh, he was in the midst. He'd already hit her and knocked her out and was or semi, she was semi-conscious. And he was raping her. And a car drove up outside and the headlights flashed into the room. And that spooked him and he ran away. So she survived. Mm-hmm. And she was one who was, again, able to identify him. Picked him out of a lineup. Okay. Yeah, I... I must have watched a documentary about that part, at least. So, well, do you have anything to add about anything? Well, I do. Uh, there, there was one interesting thing that, that happened when he was in prison. This was when another serial killer was on the loose in Wyoming, the mm-hmm. Green River Killer. Mm-hmm. And uh, he contacted a, a police officer and, and volunteered to help them find the Green River Killer. Ted did? Ted did. And he's huh. in prison and he's t- 
telling the guy what his what this killer's modus operandi might be, what they should look for. He basically profiled the guy uh, using his own experience, and uh, they they found it. the The officer said we found it helpful. Uh-huh. And uh, but they didn't make an arrest, I think, for 10, 10 or 12 years later. But Bundy even gave this killer a nickname. He called him the River Man. Oh. And so now there's a there's a book about that, about how That's Bundy offered to help mm-hmm. find another serial killer based on his experience of being one. Right. Huh. It's also so crazy that about his friendship with Anne Rule. That that's another just like mm-hmm. really interesting piece of information. Mm-hmm. Cuz she was a very famous true crime author. They just happened to meet volunteering at a suicide hotline. Yeah. And then he became the subject of one of if not her most best-selling book. So right. nuts. Yeah, he was a he he was I think the personification of evil. Oh um, yeah. No remorse, no uh, empathy for his victims. Though when I found it interesting, when Rule first met him, when he was working on the hotline, uh, she described him as very empathetic. The people would call in talking about wanting to commit suicide, and evidently he would spend time talking to them, counseling them, very kind. But uh, again, just another another one of his many faces that he put on. Yeah, that just goes back to him knowing what people want him to say or what they expect him to say. I don't know. He's just very, very manipulative and very smart and strategic, like I've said a million times. Well, the biggest lesson I can give, (laughs) as if any of you want to know, (laughs) is don't be afraid to be rude. If a guy comes up to you, any of you ladies or guys, and wants you to help him do something and wants you to go somewhere and help him do something, say no if you don't want to do it. We have to trust our instincts. Yep. Trust your gut. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Speaking of that, the the other thing, when he was on trial, a number of women would show up at his trial. Yes, I with, remember with this. With long hair parted down the middle because it was obvious that was his time. What he liked. And and after he was executed, people would write and rule saying how depressed they were because these women had been corresponding with him and they thought they were the one for him. He had like groupies. I know. What is that? I mean, why? Why why are people It's like they wanted to save him or something. I guess, but I thought, boy, that's just Again, creepy is the word that keeps coming to mind mm-hmm. here. Yeah, I forgot about that. That was crazy. Kind of like the, uh, the what were they called in Manson, the the girls. <sighs> I mean, it was his family, I, but I didn't know. the girls have a... Yeah, and I can't, I can't remember. Anyway, that. go listen to yes. our Manson episode. Yes. I know that that was a cult and this isn't, but just following someone who is a horrible person. <laughs> so, well, Dad, do you have any fatherly advice? For our listeners, you said trust your gut. Do you have anything else? You ha- you always have really good like dad advice at the end. I think if you meet a guy who seems too good to be true, he, he may is. very well be <laughs> too good to be true. Good one. Yep. All right. Well, it's finally time to announce our season finale episode. All right. All right. A few people have suggested that we do this murder 
And so we are doing it, people, because we are cocktails of crime and fashion. We are covering the man who killed legendary fashion designer Gianni Versace. And that man is... Andrew Cunanan. Exciting, exciting stuff. Now, if you really want to prepare for this episode, you need to go to Netflix and watch, I think it's called American Crime Story, The Assassination of Gianni Versace. And it covers all of Andrew Cunanan's murders that he did on his murder spree. It's going to be great. Wonderful show. Oh, there's also a book called Vulgar Favors, The Assassination of Gianni Versace. And the show was obviously based off of that book. So either read the book or watch the show and you'll, you will be prepped. All right. You excited? I am. And we're going to the 90s. Back to the 90s. All right. We will see you guys next time. See you next time. Thanks for listening. This has been Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. If you're enjoying our show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. Join our VIP Facebook group, Cocktails of Crime and Fashion VIP, to discuss cocktails, crime, and fashion, and to watch exclusive video content. Follow us on Instagram at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. We also have merch. There's a link in the episode notes. Cocktails of Crime and Fashion was written and produced by Mike Norland and Macy Norland Burkett. Our editor is Don Bailey at pretendmachine.com. Thank you to Alex Joaquim for composing our theme music and to Kaylee Bitter for designing our cover art.